You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, I was out for this last month. I did one of the things that my wife kind of likes about me, and it kind of drives her crazy, where I find new things to do, and I like to just give them a shot. So I'll tell you later, I went... Uh, I went um, uh, fly fishing for the first time, which was fun. My son wanted to do that. I'm not good. I, we went, uh, I, I took a pickleball class. Not real good at that either, but I took a class. Like I didn't, I've never played before. And so I just wanted to go give that a shot. And then um, I tried mountain biking. I don't know if you could call what I did technically mountain biking, but I did. It was not on the road. And um, I remember I did one that was, um, it was a green and it was a very easy green, and all the reviews said, this is the easiest one in the history of all humanity. Anybody can do it. And it was very short, and it took me almost two hours. <laughs> I was spent at the end. Uh, I fell once. I was fine, but I had a little tumble. I, I Actually, I have to say, I kind of did a little dance-off. It, it was pretty cool, but um, I fell. Uh, my water was gone about 10 minutes into the, into the bike ride. Um, I did not know what I was doing. I know how to ride a bike, but I, like, then I, I went to lunch with a guy and I said, I hated it, like going up a hill. Like these, some of these guys here, you know, their inclines are like this. This was, you know, barely. And there's like all these rocks and roots sticking out. And I said, that was miserable. I hated that. Going uphill and then knowing I'm going to hit a rock and probably tumble. And they're, all the guys, they're like, oh, that's the fun of it. <laughs> but I don't like mountain biking. If that's the fun of it, I did not like it. Maybe I'll get better at it. I don't know. But I, I like to do these kinds of things because, I li- especially mountain biking, I truly did have this in mind. I like trying new things because starting from zero and having to learn something is very healthy for an individual. Um, now, my wife might say, we, we got it, Jim, you're very healthy, because I try a lot of new things just for fun. But starting from zero and having to learn something new is really, it's a good practice. It's a good thing to do. It's good for you. In fact, a lot of times, what you learn is less important than just the process that you actually went through. And so you probably know this, like, you know, when, like, I remember when we had kids, and, and then they go, the doctor's like, here's the child, and I'm like, duh, I got to figure this out. I haven't had a, I'm going from zero to, I now have a child I'm responsible for. And in that moment, I go, I got to figure out how to do this. Nikki went from fiance to wife like that. And I went, oh man, we're, we're married. Like everything's different now. What, what, do I, what do I do? And so, so there's times, and it might be like if you've ever gotten a, a new job or maybe a promotion, something like that, and you've, you've conned people into you know, thinking you know what you're doing and you're really going, I feel like I'm kind of starting at zero here. Um, to, that process of learning from zero is a really good, healthy thing. And so I, I just try and do it all the time. And one of the things that came to mind for me, and this, is, this really came to mind when I started thinking about mountain biking, which I don't know that I'm ever going to do again, um, was um, uh, for me to go from zero to whatever, to stand up in front of a bunch of people who have, many of you have been in Colorado your whole life and mountain bike like crazy. And if I showed you the stats, you would laugh at me about what I did on my ride. To do that can feel very intimidating. But since I've never done it, that's probably about where I should be. And I've had conversations lately, um, this was right before I left, and then I know of two others that happened while I was gone from people that have come up and said, I don't know where to begin reading the Bible. 
And one of the things that I was doing is I was just riding the bike and, and everything is new. I hadn't done the path before. The bike was still a little feeling new and all that to me was I really did start thinking about people that are going, I'm just picking up the Bible for the first time. Where do I start? And periodically, I just want to tell you, I just want to remind these people because I know they're here and there's really, there's, there's people that don't really know where to go with their Bible. Some because they're brand new, some because it's just, it's just, it's just been a long time. And so it's just sort of easier to just, uh, you know, I'll just, you tell me what it says and, and I don't really feel like I should be able to handle it on my own. And so some, it's just kind of a, like just encouraging you to do it. And I know that's hard though. I know what that feels like. I feel like I'm going from zero and I'm standing up with a bunch of church people and going, I don't even know where to begin in the Bible. I'm so glad that those people have said that and the courage for them to say that um, is, is a beautiful thing. And I wish more people could just go, yeah, I, I just have that question. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna very briefly just tell you, and this will lead into what we're talking about. If you're looking for a place to start, I get that normally you read a book and you start in Genesis. And you would start in Genesis and you'd see Adam and Eve. Like, all right, we're, we're good. And then you keep going. And then all of a sudden it hits a big genealogy and everybody's dying and they're living to hundreds of years old. And it starts to, I don't know what's happening now. And then you hit like Leviticus, all the law. Then you get to numbers. It's like they take a census twice of the nation and it lists people. And then Deuteronomy is the, is the law repeated essentially. And so I, I, I get why people start there and just go, okay, I'm done. I didn't even get to, I didn't see Jesus's name one time. Or people go, just start in the New Testament. And then you pick up the New Testament. And the first thing that you see is in Matthew 1, where it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And if you're new to the Bible, you're going, I know the name Jesus. I've maybe heard of David and Abraham, but you might not know anybody else there. And so even picking up the New Testament sometimes is, I'm not sure where to go with this. Because we start to read genealogies. And some of, you, some of you may really be into genealogies and things like that. But most people, especially early on, this is uninteresting to them. And it can be a barrier, even though it's the word of God. Whenever um, we talk about where to start, the one that Billy Graham recommends, and I haven't found any better answer, is the Gospel of John. It's a really good place. If you are looking for a place to pick up your Bible and start reading, can I just encourage you to pick up the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you'll just read the story of Jesus. And it's not because you can't handle this. I'm just saying this stuff, the genealogies, the law, all that is interesting and important, um, but maybe, maybe not right off the bat. Maybe there's other places to start. And then I'd also say for some of you that have been Christians for a while and have read your Bible a whole lot, um, we get to the genealogy sometimes and can also, uh, uh, and kind of flip past them or get to Leviticus and go, I don't understand any of that and just keep going. I wanna show you today, the genealogy of Jesus is in two main places, the intro to Matthew's gospel and then we're there in the gospel of Luke. The elders said, hey, you should really have a big, powerful, exciting sermon when you come back. And I was like, ooh, I'll read lists of names. How about that? That's what we're doing, is we're looking at the genealogy of Jesus, and I want to show you why this matters. It's in Luke chapter 3. If you remember what's happened um, before that, uh, you've got the, the, some of the famous Christmas story with Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist. We see a little bit in John the Baptist's adulthood. It really fast forwards quite a bit, and it does that in Luke chapter 3 as well when it gets to this part with Jesus. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. 
So it, it does feel like a bit of a fast forward. And I wanna read this to you and you'll see why I had the scripture readers read the opening scripture today instead of what we're preaching on today. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. This is Luke 3, verse 23. Luke chapter three, verse 23. Being the son, and it says, as was supposed of Joseph. This is the only time in the, um, in the genealogy here that it says, as was supposed. And really what it means is, if you remember, Jesus was not the biological son of Joseph, but societally, essentially, he was the son of Joseph. And here we go. The son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, verse 25, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, that's not the prophet Amos, the son of Nahum, that's not the Old Testament prophet Nahum either. There, there were at least two Nahums about that. The son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Moth, the son of uh, Mattathias, another one, the son of uh, Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of, uh, of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel. That might be one that if you've read the Bible, you might know. After the um, Israelites were in exile, the Babylonian exile, they came back and Zerubbabel was the governor over Judah. The son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kassam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur. I hope you're with me. Verse 29. The son of Joshua, that's not any of the Joshuas that you've heard of. The son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, not the Levi that you might've heard of. The son of Simeon, nope. The son of, uh, where are we? Son of Judah, not the Judah you're thinking of. The other son of Joseph, the son of Joseph, that's not the Joseph that, that you know. The son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of uh, Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. We know one, the son of David, and then it says the son of Jesse. One of the things he's pointing out here is there, were, there, were, there was an understanding that um, Christ would come from this Davidic line. And actually it says in Isaiah 11, a shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his Roots, meaning Jesus Christ, who would one day come, is the promised um, branch of Jesse's family. We have this thing we do at Christmas, um, the Jesse tree. I always call it the Joshua tree, and I forget that's a U2 album. The Jesse tree. Um, and it's, it's this great devotional that we do with our kids, and I think when we're empty nesters, we'll probably still do it. It's really great. And it's, it's going back to this idea that from Jesse, one is eventually going to come, Jesus Christ the promised one. So this is accurate. This is going back to say he is from Jesse. Oh, but the hits keep coming. Ready? The son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. There may be some more that you're familiar with. Not a lot. There's a lot of these that we're not familiar with. And in fact, they have similar names to other people. And so it can get really, really confusing as to who we're talking about here. Some of these people aren't even mentioned in other Jewish literature that we can find. Or maybe they are, and we just don't know because there's apparently like lots of Nahums and lots of Josephs and things like that. And so we're not sure. But this is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This is saying that he has the perfect Jewish pedigree that God made promises to Abraham in the book of Genesis that one day one would come from him that would bless all the nations of the earth. And he, what Luke is doing is saying this Jesus is who this is and he's tracing it back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But he keeps going. 
the son of Terah, the son of Nehor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, that's the Noah we know, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of um, Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. And it's interesting, we'll talk next week about the son of God. My daughter, uh, my youngest asked, she said, what are you gonna preach on tomorrow? I said, I'm doing the genealogy of Jesus. She said, are you just gonna stand up and read it the whole service? And then um, it was kind of a follow-up question, if that's all I was doing of, do I have to go to church tomorrow, dad? <laughs> we see that there's, I won't, I won't go read you all of Matthew's genealogy, you're welcome, but you have Matthew's genealogy and then you have Luke um, as well, and there's differences in them. Why are there differences in them? And it goes back to this. It goes back to something we call it the authorial intent, or what did the author intend when he wrote this? Matthew's genealogy starts with Abraham, the book of the genealogy, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then it starts working its way until it arrives at the Christ child. That's how Matthew's gospel starts. Why would he be doing that? Why didn't he go back farther than Abraham? Because Matthew's gospel is intended to reach Jews in that day. And what they would have cared about is, is this the one that comes from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And so that thing in the New Testament that we kind of go, okay, son of Abraham, son of David, a Jewish person is reading this and going, this is him. Matthew wants us to know that right off the bat in his gospel. Now, Luke's gospel is very different. Where Matthew starts with Abraham and works towards Jesus, what does Luke do? He starts with Jesus, and did you notice what he went back to? Adam. There's something quite profound in what he's saying. One of the things he's saying from this that I don't want you to miss is he's, not, is he's saying God is not just the God of the Israelites. He's the God of, Luke's audience, the Greeks. This is a God for all mankind, this is the God of all the people on the earth who exist and who have ever lived. This is who, this is, they are created by God, they are loved by God, and God wants these people and he wants their hearts. This is the God of humanity. So if you think about it, Luke writing to a Greek audience, they would have been thinking, um, we're, we're on the outs. Like uh, the, the Jews, have, they, they've been practicing this forever. They know their Old Testament very well. Um, we feel like we are so late to the game in fact, sometimes they would shorthand when they would say Gentiles or pagans, like non-Christians, they would just call them Greeks. Greeks are ones they had an empire as well. The Jews didn't really care for them. And now all of a sudden, what's happening? The Romans come in, you have this Greco-Roman world they're living in. And now what you have is Luke writing and saying, this is for everybody. This is for you. You Greeks need to know this. Where you might feel like you don't have the background um, you're in. That, th this, is why, this is why so much of the New Testament, we read and go, why is there all this stuff about Jews and Gentiles you know, working together in the church? It's because back then, that was a really, really big deal where Jews would immediately think this is just for us. Gentiles, Greeks would go, this is, this is not for us. This is just for them. And what the mystery of the church that, that Christ brings in is this idea of Jews and Gentiles together, Jews and Greeks together. It's easy to just think, um, 
We're a little late to the game. We don't have the background that they have. Imagine that, people of all different backgrounds coming together to worship Jesus now. What a profound idea. That should sound familiar, by the way. It's the church. That's the church. This is what we have in the church. And listen, if we were to start going through and you were to start to hear people's stories about their faith or lack of faith or their church history or lack of church history, I bet you there's very few people that have a lot of similarities. Man, we have people, think about who gathers. We have uh, men and women. We have um, young and old. We have um, single, widowed, married. Uh, we have every, every life stage like that. We have wealthy, we have poor, we have um, educated, uneducated. We, we have, just in our little church, we have that, besides people watching online. We have people that were um, born in America, native here, people that were born overseas and are now here. People that were born in Colorado and have lived here their whole life, people that haven't lived in Colorado and came here later. We, we have people from all different backgrounds. We have people that the church historically for them has been the sweetest salvation. I would say like with me, when my dad left, that church, men in the church especially coming around me is one of the reasons why I'm before you today. I have real sweet memories of church. And so I can't help but sort of bring that into this context here. At the same time, there's people that their history with church is the opposite. Bitterness. Church splits, ugliness. Christians do this to each other. Are you kidding me? Difficult, difficult things in the life of the church. And what this is saying is we got to figure out how to get along. We have people here that come from um, Methodist background, Baptist background, Lutheran background, one of the 27 million Presbyterian branches of denominations kind of background. We have Catholics and Episcopals, and we have, some would say they still are, some would say former or whatever. Um, we have people from all these different backgrounds, all these different streams, if you will, and then here we are coming together. And when we're here, it's easy for us to start putting up a hierarchy. Well, you haven't been in church as long as I have. Oh, I'm a little better than you about that. You have a pretty immature position on this. I have a more mature position. It's easy to just start doing basically what the world does. Just to start throwing this, this judgment, I've got it right, you've got it wrong. This is the church coming together and saying, we have all these different strains or strands of history. We have all these um, things that have formed us in our life and we're coming together and none of that matters because we're worshiping Jesus Christ. That's one of the things, the most profound things that he's saying. Um, this, is why, uh, this is why every time I, I hit on any kind of touchy topic, which I, apparently the culture gets to decide what's touchy or not, I get that. Um, whenever, that was a sarcasm, sorry. Um, whenever I hit something that's a little bit touchy, I'm going to get emails. Some from people saying, I wish you'd hit that harder. And some from people saying, I wish you hadn't talked about that. Why? Because for some people, oh, that, that, was, that was something that triggered something in them. I don't mean that in the bad way, I'm sorry. Like there, there's a memory or there's a hurt or something like that. And oh, I brought a guest and on that day that you had to talk about that. And someone else going, why are you apologizing? The Bible says it, you ought to just say it. So here's why. I think I've shared this illustration before. Um, I learned a leadership principle uh, a while back. I wish I could credit the guy. I don't remember where I heard it. But it's the idea of a stove. And um, when you're leading people to, to some kind of change, which is what we want, we want to be changed to be more like Christ, then picture people on a stove. Weird way to start out an illustration, I understand. Picture people you're leading on a stove, like the burner, and, and you've got to figure out, you're going to turn it up, and that enables some kind of change. If you turn it up too fast, people are just going to bolt and jump off. But if you just turn it too cold, then people just get complacent and stay exactly where they are. 
So you want to figure out just how to do it. And he's talking to a bunch of pastors. And I don't remember the guy's name. I remember exactly where he was when he said it. And he's talking to a bunch of pastors and said, and you have people in your church come from all different backgrounds, men, women, young, old, all the things I just mentioned to you. And everybody has a different burner setting. And he goes, so good luck. <laughs> and he walked off. <laughs> That's the challenge. Coming here to be changed and then figuring out as a leader, how do we go? I, I appreciate and I hear everybody coming from all these different places. How do we walk together through this? That's my job. One of the things I'd give you just as an application for your job is to think through what is your background? What are the assumptions you might bring to the table? Do you have a rich denominational background that, that when you're here, you're, you're listening very much through that filter? Do you have some hurts towards the church? Are, are, do you, are you here real skeptically? Are you here joyfully? Think through what is your background and we'll come together as the church as one radically different people sometimes in our backgrounds united around Christ and what he has done. That's one of the things that he's saying, that he's saying here. Second thing that I see here as well is remember he's writing to a Greek audience and Greeks had this idea of this word called arete, which is this idea of, of, um, of holiness or perfection, I guess. They're looking for um, the perfect man the perfect person. So you think of all the philosophy and academia that came out of the Greek world. They're saying, if we can just think our way, uh, we can think our way to the top. We can study our way to the top. We can become perfect and achieve if we do these things. And Luke writing to the Greeks is, is showing the humanity of Jesus Christ. He is saying he goes back to Adam. That Jesus, we say, is fully God and at the same time is fully man. So if you think, now let your mind go there and just go, what does it mean that Jesus, yes, he was fully God, but also is fully man? Let me read Isaiah 53, a prophecy about Christ. Jesus Christ, who was a man, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Without getting too graphic, you need to know that Christ being human means that he felt pain. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He wept uh, at the tomb of Lazarus. He felt um, abandonment. He felt rejection. Peter, ugh, Peter denied him three times. He got betrayed by Judas. And when he was on the cross, I, th I think sometimes, and maybe I do this too, I, we get this idea that because he's God, the cross was sort of fast forwarded through and yet hurt, but we get right onto the resurrection. And if you think about it, Jesus as a man felt pain and hurt on the cross. And that should just let us know this. He paid a dear, dear price for our sin. Our sin is a big deal. But also, that should demonstrate his love for us. That the innocent one went to the cross and felt real pain. We, we hate it when, uh, when innocent people, so to speak, suffer. I was walking in my house the other day and my dog was laying there and I didn't see him and I stepped and a came out of his mouth 
And I instantly, without even thinking about it, was putting my weight on this foot and I thought, oh no. And so I lifted my foot up and we're right by the stairs. And I almost, I kid you not, I almost just tumbled down the stairs. It was a really nice scene. Almost fell down the stairs. And all my kids did was run over and make sure that the dog was okay, by the way. I'd like to point that out. Why? Oh, innocent little puppy, are you okay? We're sorry, dad stepped on you with his big mean feet. Because he's the innocent little puppy and he got hurt. Christ is the only innocent person that ever lived and he went to the cross humiliated, tortured, hurt for our sin and he's demonstrating the great love that he has for us. It cost Jesus something as a human. Imagine if you're in jail and I go to bail you out of jail and, uh, and you're not gonna be able to get a job. And so I get you, I pay the fee, whatever it is to get you out, get you in the car. And then I go, I've got you a house. I've, um, I've got you some money because you're probably not gonna be able to get a job and let's go. And then um, you're going, oh, wow, thank you. That's very nice. And then you see uh, a little piece of paper and you go, what is that? And I go, oh, it's the, I'm about to go cash it. It's the, uh, it's the winning lottery ticket. Then all of a sudden my generosity is, oh, well, thanks for paying a few hundred bucks and getting me a house as you're on your way to get your millions and millions of dollars. That didn't really hurt you. It didn't really cost you anything. Now imagine, same thing, I get you out of jail, whatever it is, and we go, you don't have money, I give you money. I say, I bought you a house, I've got you money so you can, because you're not gonna be able to get a job. And we're driving, and then you look and you see on the dash another piece of paper. And you go, what is that? And I show it to you, and through a series of the conversations, we go, uh, this, is this, this is some paperwork for the second job that I have to take in order to be able to pay for your house and your livelihood. Now, all of a sudden, what are you doing? You, you did that for me? You're gonna feel that. That's, that's gonna hurt. That's gonna change your life. That's a sacrifice that you have made for me. When we see Jesus is a man, going back to Adam, when you see Jesus is a man, we need to remember the cross as a price that was paid. It cost Christ. And the last thing I wanna say, and this might just be really especially for Christians here today. Um, <clears throat> All right, give me a minute to set this one up. I, I just wanna make the comment that we rarely know the impact of a moment in time in the moment. We rarely know the impact of a moment in a moment. And, and here's what I mean. The two biggest um, sort of global events that happened in my lifetime were 9-11 um, and then coronavirus that we're in right now. I remember on 9-11, uh, I was going to school full-time. My wife was going to work. We had just gotten married, been married two and a half, three years. And um, she was going to work and she called and said, um, can you turn on the news? They're talking on the radio. Something happened in New York City and she started saying what she heard and then I turned it on and I remember distinctly sitting there watching and going, everything's gonna be different. I don't know how, but everything's gonna be different. And I still don't know how did that moment, I, like that's a significant, huge thing. And I still don't even fully grasp how did that affect me? How did that affect America? We're still seeing ripple effects because parents parent differently because of that event. That was a, a big moment for our nation. And so now we're seeing the next generation and how has that affected them? So even in the moment, I went, I know this is a big deal, but I still didn't even grasp it. Or coronavirus. When, when, when I started hearing about COVID, I was like, ah, you know, whatever, that'll, that'll pass. And then stuff starts coming in and you start hearing one bit of information and then conflicting information and you're not sure what's going. And so it's been kind of this rollout process and you go, and so often in the moment, we rarely understand the, the impact that that moment 
has. In history, sometimes we do. But this is what I wanted to share with you today. You rarely know the impact of your life during your life. You rarely know the impact of your life during your life. And when I read this genealogy, do you notice how many people, we have no clue who they are. I started looking at all these resources. I couldn't find, I mean, so many of them, of the 77, I think it is, very few do we even know who they are. Like, can you imagine being in heaven and being like, oh my gosh, hey, come over here. You got to see this. You, you, guys are, you guys are in the book. You, you made it. Uh, yeah, go get, go get uh, Ur and Peleg and whoever those guys were and get them over. They're not, you're not going to believe this. Because in the moment, they probably didn't realize that they were a part of this redemptive history that was happening through the line of Christ. But now we look back and we can see the impact. One commentator says it like this, history never looks like history when you're living through it. It always looks confusing and messy and always feels uncomfortable. You rarely know the impact of your life during your life. One of the biggest regrets that I hear at funerals, people get up and they share the most beautiful things about the person we're honoring in the service. And you know what they'll say? I wish I had said this when they were alive. I wish they could have known this. There's an impact that happened and that person doesn't even know. I think about a parent raising kids, thinking about the impact they have and you go, I think this is sitting in, but I, I don't know. <laughs> and then eventually you get to see them maybe when they're grown and you go, oh, good, they came back around. Or if maybe a retirement party and all these employees are sitting around saying things about you and you go, you guys thought that about me? Wow. You rarely know the impact of your life in your life. And so as Christians, we go, I want to make an impact. I want to make a difference. But I'm also in this spot of going, I don't know if this is going to actually make a difference in people's lives. And so what do we do? And that's what I want to leave you with today. What do we do and how do we actually um, impact people's lives? Um, one of the other things I did, I mentioned during my little time off here, was I went um, fly fishing with Seth. Uh, I am not good at it. I uh, hooked as many fish as I did guides. <laughs> I went back to do the thing and I went like this and thought, why isn't it going anywhere? And the guide's like this and he goes, that's why we wear glasses. And I had hooked him. All right, so I was not a natural, let's say. Seth actually got it down pretty good. He was doing pretty good. Um, not to brag, but I did catch a fish right there. There's the picture. Yeah, pretty gargantuan. I know if you're, um, if you're just listening to the podcast, I'm holding up a small whale. So, um, so I did get a fish. And then this is a picture about three seconds after that. There you go. And uh, one of the things I learned about fly fishing, this is intimidating because I know a lot of you uh, fly fish, but um, I, I, you, you know, I've done a little bit of the other kind of fishing where there's a weight on the end and then you can feel the tug and you can see if the little bobber goes under. And this one, they say you've got to cast it and then you've got to let the, the lure go the speed of the stream because apparently these fish see one that's not, if it's too tight and it's not moving the same rate of the stream, they'll know it's fake, which I think is way overestimating what these fish know. <laughs> like, it's going, like it's going the right speed, but also has like a hook growing out of its abdomen. And they're like, let's go get it. So anyway, so you're supposed to do it like the speed of the stream as it's going down. And so you cast, 
And then you, you know, you kind of let it go down and then you cast. I kind of I got that river runs through it thing going at the end. I cast and then you go down. I was there with my son who wanted to go. He cast three times and then looked at me and went <laughs> like that. I was like, oh, this is going to be a long day. <laughs> and I kept casting and I kept going. And I think I sort of figured out why people like it is because your brain, your endorphins are pumping the whole time because you're dropping it and watching. And as it's going, um, at any second, the bobber could go bleep, bleep, and go under. I don't know if that's cheating to use a bobber. We used a bobber and it went bleep, bleep, and it would go under. And you, you, so the whole time you're just watching and watching and watching and then you gotta pull the thing and set the hook. And so we're watching and watching and watching. And more often than not, no bites, no nothing. So what do you do? You cast it again. Maybe this time, maybe this time, no. And in about four hours of fishing, I had a few bites, Seth had a few bites, um, caught one fish. You rarely know the impact of your life during your life. So what do we do? Keep casting. Keep casting over and over and over. And then we can wait with anticipation and going, what is God going to do in this moment? And every so often he gives you a glimpse and you get that little bite. I, the people I think about right now, I think about parents going, is this even setting in with my kids? Just keep casting, keep casting, keep casting. I think about people that serve in our kids ministry that are there week after week after week. And then all of a sudden, maybe one just casting, casting, nothing. Seems like nothing, seems like nothing, seems like nothing. And then all of a sudden, one day, maybe a teacher just says and the, talks about God's great love for them. And the little boy that's never paying attention is just locked in. I think about um, our student ministry. I was a, a student pastor. I was a volunteer actually for years. And one of the nice things I get to do now that the kids are older, I get to hear from them and see where they are in life. And I, seventh grade boys, all right? You talk about just casting and going, nothing, casting, nothing. <laughs> Nothing's happening. I mean, I'm, this was even before cell phones, thank God, or they would have, I'd have probably been doing that the whole time. I'm just teaching them and going, here's what the Bible says. Here's what, and I'm available to talk to them. And this was for years. And I go, I don't I think I'm making a difference. And then I've had them now over time come back and like introduce me to their fiance or their wife and go, this is Jim. He was helpful to me at this point in my life because of da, da, da. And I go, really? I thought you hated me. I can't wait to get to heaven someday and see people and go, oh, you're here. And I mean, imagine somebody coming up and going, I'm here and I'm here because of you. And you're going, really? Yeah. Keep casting, keep casting. Your prayer partner that stands up week after week after week, keep standing there praying for people and be ready. See what God does.